Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Silvana Tanreiro. I'm a professor of economics, a member of the Center for Macroeconomics at the LSE. I'd like to start, every, to start by thanking everyone for uh, coming to the LSE today on such a difficult and uh, tragic day in London. I'm glad you came. Um, and I'm really pleased to welcome Olivier Blanchard, who will deliver this year's Stamp Memorial Lecture. The lecture is jointly hosted by the Department of Economics and the Center for Macroeconomics. And as you may know, this lecture is given, given in memory of Josia Charles Stamp, who obtained a postgraduate degree in economics from the LSE in 1916. He had an impressive career in academia, business, and the civil service, including, among others, being director of the Bank of England, chairman of the London, Midland, and Scottish Railway, and governor and vice chairman of the LSE. After his death in 1941, a trust was set up jointly by the Bank of England, the London Midland and Scottish Railway, ICI, and the Abbey Road Building Society to fund the Stamp Memorial Lecture. We are delighted that Olivier Blanchard has agreed to give the Stamp Lecture this year. Olivier is currently Fred Bergson's Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute in Washington, and Robert Solo, Professor of Economics Emeritus at MIT, having served as Chief Economist of the IMF from 2008 to 2015. Before joining the IMF, Olivier was a class of 1941 Professor of Economics at MIT. And uh, as you know, he has, he has had uh, a most prolific academic career. He's the author of many, many books, including two textbooks in macroeconomics, one of, at the undergraduate level and the other one at the graduate level, from which many of us have learned our macroeconomics. He has published literally hundreds of articles on a wide range of topics, including the role of monetary policy, speculative bubbles, the workings of the labor market, the determinants of unemployment, the transition in former communist countries, macroeconomic slumps, and external imbalances. Tonight, um, today, tonight he will talk about the state of advanced economies, and in particular, the forces, interactions, and uncertainties that are shaping these economies today. Before we start, for those on Twitter, the hashtag for the event is LSE Stamp, and I would like to ask everyone to put uh, your mobiles on silent now. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical um, problems. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance to, um, for you to put up your questions to the speaker. Uh, but for now, I will ask you to welcome Olivier Blanchard with a warm round of applause. Good evening. First, you'll note that my voice is not exactly uh, strong or perfect, but don't worry, it has been like this for a few months, so it should, it should last the evening. Uh, the second is uh, I'm, I'm clearly honored uh, to be here and to have been invited to give this lecture, but I'm always very happy to come back to LSE. Uh, 
thanks to Richard Laird, I, I spent uh, two uh, stays uh, at LSE in the 80s. Uh, the first one uh, was uh, to work with Lai Summers on hysteresis. Uh, and the only way to work with Lai Summers is to basically get him away from his house in some house somewhere where he cannot uh, hide. But we were very successful in writing the paper, at least. Uh, and then the second time was with uh, Stan Fisher, in which we came to finish the, the book, which became the, the college textbook that some of you probably have uh, suffered <laughs> through. But uh, these are very, very nice memories, and uh, always great to be in this uh, particular theater, actually. So in thinking about the, the lecture tonight, I, I thought that I would give you a, a somewhat of a break from Trump, <laughs> which is tough. I mean, it is, uh, as we know, it, it's hard to think about other things, but I think we have to. Uh, and the plan is to look at what has shaped the recovery from the financial crisis, so from the uh, late 2000s to, uh, to today, and as an implication where we're going from there. Uh, it is in between some description of reality and some implicit analytical structure, uh, which seems fine for the kind of talk that I'm giving today. So let me just give you a, a sense of the talk, and this is really the slide which tells you what I'm going to try to do. If I think about what has happened since, say, uh, 2012, uh, I think of three forces. The first one is uh, the legacies from the uh, fi global financial crisis and from the euro crisis, which led to very high levels of debt uh, with all kinds of implications. And what I'm going to argue is that this way, this played an important role, that's not a surprise, but that uh, they, are, they are fading. They are not the dominant force at this point. And indeed, I think in some countries, such as the US, uh, they have faded. If you want to understand the US today, it is not essential to go back to, to the crisis, at least in terms of macro, not in terms of finance. So this was a very dominant force, which is slowly fading, not everywhere, as I'll say. Uh, I think in some European countries, it is still very much an issue. The second force is, again, something that you've heard about, which is that productivity growth has been very low, and that it was low during the financial crisis or during any sharp recession is not a surprise. That's uh, what happens in recession. You get labor hoarding, you get various things, which lead to very low productivity growth. But it seems that it is a deeper issue than just that. It is just not the crisis. There is quite a bit of evidence that the slowdown started before the crisis. And as the recovery has taken place, uh, it doesn't, you know, productivity growth has remained quite dismal, and in particular in your country. Uh, but, but to a large extent in most advanced economies. Now, that's important clearly for the medium term in terms of where we're going. Uh, but what I'm going to argue is that it explains quite a bit of the uh, weakness of demand of the last few years. That the reason why demand was weak in a number of countries was not only legacies, but it was perception that the future was worse. And I think something that I've learned to be very important in 
narco with what is known as animal spirits, which is if you anticipate the future to be worse, then you're going to cut on consumption, you're going to cut on investment. And I'm going to argue that that's a source, that learning learning that the future was not going to be as good led to a fairly sharp decrease in consumption, fairly sharp decrease in investment. Under different circumstances, it could have led to another recession. I don't think it was strong enough, but it made basically for a very weak growth of demand. Now, what's important here is that, if I'm right, this explains some of the puzzle of why the recovery hasn't been stronger in terms of output. But it also says if there are no new bad surprises on that front, the adjustment to the news is basically largely a thing of the past, and demand will be stronger. You adjust, but once you've adjusted, you don't need to do it again and again and again. So I'm going to argue that that was an important explanation for the weak recovery, but looking forward, this again is not going to be as relevant as it was. So the two first factors really play in the same direction of saying demand is likely to be stronger than it was. Then the third one is that's why I cannot avoid uh, Trump, is, uh, but it's clearly much bigger than Trump. It's populism and political uncertainty. And then the question is, how does this change the picture? And here, again, I'll try to avoid getting into the high-frequency stuff, but I think we can guess that, if anything, you know, there'll be a bit more of a fiscal expansion in the U.S. than there would have been otherwise. How much, we don't know. But clearly, there'll be much more uncertainty about uh, many, many macro aspects. So if I put the three together, I get... So this is the fourth-point interactions and the baseline. If you look forward, you know, for the next 10 years, unless something happens, and I argue that it may, but unless something happens, we basically are going to have mediocre potential growth over the next 10 years. And so we should not be incredibly optimistic about what's going to happen there. At the same time, some of the factors which made us be below potential output, namely weak demand, are going to strengthen. So we're going to have, if you want, a faster return to a mediocre potential output path. It's the kind of picture that the baseline, I think, suggests. But I will argue, and this will be the last point, that there are many uncertainties. And one of the legacies of the uh, financial crisis, uh, which is not gone, which probably does not affect demand directly, uh, interacts with uncertainty in very bad ways. If you have very high levels of debt, say public debt to GDP, then movements in interest rates, for example, uncertainty about interest rates is a very big issue because it multiplies a very large amount of debt. Uh, if you have you know, 10% of GDP debt, whether the interest rate is 5% or 0, doesn't much matter. If you start with 150% debt to GDP, then five or zero makes a gigantic difference to whether you go bust or not. And I think that's surely a source of uncertainty. So for those of you who have dinner, you have it. I mean, that's basically what I'm going to talk about. Uh, the rest is just going into details, but that's what I want to, uh, to argue. This was a joke about <laughs> Okay, so let me, let me go into each of these points. So the first one is legacies, and again, 
you know, the, the whole lecture could be about that. Uh, it's clearly a very rich topic. Uh, the way I would describe how we should think about it is clearly, typically a financial crisis comes from high private debt. Basically, either households or firms basically go into debt to a degree where they should not, and then something happens. Then what happens is something bad happens, so spending is cut, private spending goes down, and then the state comes in to try to limit the, uh, the shock, and then you get high public debt. So you get this two-stage uh, progression, which is first you get a large increase in private debt, typically, and then an increase in public debt as a response to, to the crisis. And that's exactly what has happened. So let me just show you uh, two graphs. So this is household debt levels. And you can see that they go up more or less. They peak just before the crisis or around the crisis. And then this is government debt levels. And you see the difference, which is that they are low until the crisis. I and mean, we know of some exceptions, but basically they are low. But the need to actually do something to protect the economy leads to large deficits. But at the end of the crisis, you get the sum of the two. You basically have high public debt and high private debt. And that's what makes the recovery very difficult. Now, why is it... So here I'm going to do a small detour, but it's a question that I pondered for years. And so I'll give you the, the short answer that I, at least I came with, which is why is it that high debt matters? Because in the end, you know, the debt of somebody is a claim of somebody, and... If that is high, presumably claims are high. Uh, why is it that it doesn't cancel out? It's kind of a very simple question. Well, the, the answer is debtors are not like the creditors. The debtors are constrained, and the creditors are not. And so basically when a debtor gets more debt, he's more constrained, and he's likely to react more strongly than the creditor is to the increase in the claim. Now, the argument has to be a bit more sophisticated. It depends who is the debtor, who is the creditor. But... In the end, if you have high debt, it's likely to constrain spending because the debtors are basically the guys who have constraint and the other guys don't extend as much. So this is, this is what happens after a financial crisis. And the way it has played is we've seen it. It's basically the banks have deleveraged, basically decreased their debt. Fiscal went from mass massive expansion to massive contraction, which is, again, a decrease in spending. Uh, households have decreased debt as well. But this process, which is a natural next step, means that spending is low for a while. And that's why the recovery from financial crisis is low. So that's a, the book by Ken Rogoff and Carmen Heinhardt showing that it takes a long time. That's a mechanism, basically. So this has been at work. Let me show you. So <clears throat> on the... public debt side and fiscal policy. So this is the change in the measure we think of as policy determined, which is the structural balance, namely the primary balance if output was at potential. And you don't need to get into all the balance, but basically you see that during the crisis you get a very major fiscal expansion. These are all the balance below, and then the wind shifts, and then you get a major fiscal contraction which lasts for quite a while. Now, I'm not going to go into whether that was a good idea or not. Some of you might know my ideas on that, but I will not. But anyway, that's what happened. The point I want to make is if you look at the end, uh, you 
basically are in a situation in which fiscal consolidation is not playing a major role. There's one country where it is still, uh, which I will not mention. But, uh, you know, in the U.S., for example, fiscal consolidation stopped uh, a year and a half ago. So this is no longer uh, uh, an impediment to demand. Basically, is not playing that role. The other is uh, deleveraging and that's a graph that you must have seen in some form. So this gives a change in credit availability from a, a survey of the Eurozone. So there's no UK there, but the UK would give roughly the same, uh, the same general uh, uh, answer, which is that basically until 2013, the dots are below the zero line, which means that there's continuing contraction of credit. This is the supply side. And then, since then, basically, there's expansion. So, again, it's not as if everybody can get credit very easily, but clearly the period of credit tightening is, for most countries, gone. You can see one exception, which is relevant, which is Greece at the bottom, but otherwise for the major countries. So the bottom line is I think we're more or less out of the woods in terms of the effects of the financial crisis, full debt, full uh, decreased spending, and so I don't think that can explain today in most countries why demand growth is low. I should be clear here. If you look at unemployment, you see that unemployment has decreased a lot, but that comes from the fact that productivity growth has been dismal. If you look at output, output growth has been very, very low. So when I talk about the weak recovery, I'm talking about output. Uh, but the point I want to make, and this, you know, this, is, this will go into the last point of the lecture, which is that we now are in a phase in which I don't think that debt is standing in the way of strong demand, but we're in a state in which debt ratios are going to remain very high for a long time because the way you get rid of them is either through growth, which is weak, or inflation, which is not there. So we're going to get high levels of debt for a long time, and then the interaction between interest and growth shocks and debt is much stronger than it was before the crisis. And I think that's a very major issue for a number of countries. So this is kind of, to be technical, this is not a first-moment legacy. I don't think it affects the level of demand, but it affects second moments, namely the uncertainty which might come uh, from movements in those rates. At the bottom, I, I indicate two countries where the interaction of very high uh, debt uh, and potentially low growth or high interest rates would create very serious problems. And in the Q&A, if you want, you can come back to this, but this is clearly a place where there are good reasons to worry. So this is the first point, right? Important, less important of the time, having nearly faded completely in some countries, but if that level is fairly high. So the, <clears throat> the second point, which may be, I mean, is a very important part of my talk, but I think it's probably the dominant part of the evolution of advanced economies in the last five years and the next ten, is, is low productivity growth. Uh, and I think that's, I think there was a lecture by Andy Aldane two days ago, so I don't know what the overlap in the audience is. Andy gave, uh, I thought, extremely interesting micro-information about it. I'm going to stay the, at the macro level. Uh, but as I say... Productivity growth was very low in the crisis, but you know when output decreases, uh, 
by a large amount and productivity growth collapses because you do not decrease the inputs by as much. So not not much surprise. But since then, in the recovery, uh, productivity growth has remained uh, very, very low. And, uh, you know, it has been low in the U.S., but it has been very low in the U.K., which, again, explains why unemployment has done quite well despite low growth. Um, One of the characteristics which I find fascinating is that this is true for nearly all advanced economies. We tend to give explanations which are based on some characteristics of one country which is not doing this or doing that. In fact, it's true of nearly all countries. I think the only one which has done relatively well for reasons we understand is Spain, in which you know, the shock was so bad that they had to get rid of a whole lot of people. So productivity, labor productivity went up, but I think that's just one observation. For the rest, it's clearly something very common to, uh, to all these economies. The magnitude of the revisions is fairly large, so I think I have a graph. So this is the evolution of uh, productivity growth in various countries. And again, just get the visual. It clearly has, has gone bad. The, the lowest line at the end is the UK, as you know which had measured negative labor productivity growth in two years. But all the other countries are are very very low. And then this is something uh, that was constructed by the CBO. Uh, So the CBO, to do the budget forecast, has to construct a number of variables over the next 10 years. And one of the variables that they construct is long-run potential growth. So they have to basically come up with a path of what they think potential growth will be over the next 10 years. And this gives you what they think potential growth will be 10 years ahead, not the average for the next 10 years, but just the final point. The reason for going looking at that rather than the average is that initially, if, capital, if investment has been very low, capital accumulation has been low. So initially, some of the effect is going to show up in potential growth. If you look 10 years ahead, that effect is largely gone. So this is what CBO has done over time, and it has affected the way they they score the various budget proposals that they are confronted with. But you can see that it has started in the early 2000s, went down a lot, and even during the crisis basically has decreased by uh, close to 1%. 1% is a big number for these things because we're talking about economies where aging implies that labor force growth is very low. So this is a fairly major event. Okay, so, so that's point one, that basically our assessment of potential growth uh, has been revised down. Only have we seen low, low productivity growth now, but we think, or at least CBO thinks, that it is going to last a long time. A footnote. These are the CBO forecast, the forecast by the equivalent organization in the UK uh, has kept 2% throughout. My sense is not because they know something. It's because they haven't thought about it. Uh, anyway, so I want to take a number of issues here. So, I, you know, this is, again, Andy talked a lot about these things, but I have been... At, uh, at meetings or conferences where typically there are two sessions. There's a session by economists, so one of them is me, or I'm, I'm it, and then a session by a guy from Palo Alto 
you know, an IT type. And so it depends who starts, but the IT type starts and says, you know, we're doing everything. In 10 years, we'll be able to live forever. We'll have all the medication we need. We will not age. Uh, these are actual statements, right? Uh, you know, we'll use the brain to connect to the cloud, and we'll have a cloud. And then I come and I say, well, you know, productivity growth has decreased every year. <laughs> and I, some, sometimes people who are there have paid good money uh, to be there, and I wonder how they come out, you know, with this complete schizophrenia. Uh, so the question, but it's a serious question, which is there's a complete disconnect between, uh, you know, the Palo Alto or the... Uh, Silicon Valley view of of what's happening and and the numbers and I think we have to give some weight to the possibility that the economists are wrong that we just don't know how to measure things so that's measurement error and here I, it seems to me that again I've not done own work on this but I've read the literature fairly carefully uh, measurement error, error is always there and it probably is a bit bigger than it used to be, but I, I do not think can explain uh, the graph that I've shown you. I'll give you a number of reasons uh, which are on this slide. Uh, the first one is, I mean, the people that, you know, they pair me with at these events come from IT. IT is still a fairly small proportion of the economy, so even if productivity growth there is badly measured, which it probably is, uh, it doesn't make a gigantic amount of difference. Uh, the second, which is quite relevant, is a lot of the measurement issues come uh, with intermediate goods. So you put, you use computers in a different way to produce a car. Well, this is going to create problems in determining the productivity of a plant as opposed to the productivity of a computer itself. But if we measure the car correctly, it's not going to make a difference to the aggregate productivity measure. Right, either the car is produced more efficiently or not, and we don't care about what went into the in, into the black box before that. So, a lot of what we see is basically improvement along the chain, rather than at the end. Now, doesn't mean that measuring cars is easy. We have to use hedonic pricing. We have to look at various characteristics, but it, it is relatively simple relative to say assessing the uh, productivity of some software. Uh, so, I think again. That says we may screw up completely in the allocation of productivity across sectors, but I don't think uh, that it has major impact on, on aggregate productivity measures. The third, and these are things you probably have heard, is that a lot of the improvement comes from, uh, the, I think, what I've called the quality of leisure. Maybe Richard would call the change in the quality. He uh, would question the word quality. Uh, of leisure, but you know, you spend your time with your iPhone uh, as opposed to doing other things, and that's not just not measured in GDP by by choice. This is non-market activities, so it's clear that our non-market activities have changed enormously. Uh, and again, by definition, it's not in GDP. Now, this being said, I think the consensus from the people who work on these things and are serious people is that measurement uh, is there. Uh, it may be of the order of three-quarter percent or maybe one percent, but it has not increased very much. Uh, I'm a bit more skeptical, and I just register. For example, healthcare continues to be measured abominably. 
uh, basically the quality of healthcare is is basically not measured. Uh, and healthcare in the U.S., thanks to our marvelous system, is 17% of spending. So if we screw up there, it is a very big issue. So I'm not sure in the end that what I'm saying today will, you know, re- re- survive the test of time. But uh, I don't think measurement there is it. Now, the last point is, I don't know, I don't know how relevant it is, but suppose we actually measured things right, and the growth rate would be, say, 1% higher. When we look at the real income of people, the median worker in the U.S., given what we have today, it is flat for the last 20 years. If we did the measurement error correction, we would conclude that it has increased by 1% a year for the last 20 years. It seems to me the perceptions of, that we have of the economy and that people have of the economy would be rather different, uh, which I find to be an interesting twist. Uh, maybe populism would not be as successful if we did the measurement uh, better, uh, or the numbers would look better. Uh, there would be more deflation by construction. So this is Minouche's uh, uh, part of the woods, uh, because we know that the nominal magnitudes are right. So if we increase the real, then it has to be that the prices are declining faster. But it would be a very different world, and I think the discussions we would have would be quite different. Now, this was kind of a, a parenthesis, but it's related to this, to this uh, graph, uh, to, this, to this slide, and, which is, okay, so productivity growth has been low now since the mid-2000s. We understand that some of it was a crisis, but even that is the best assumption to just extrapolate and say, well, it's going to be low for the next 10 years, which is kind of what the CBO has done by revising down, seeing bad numbers and so on. And I think the answer is we should be very careful in the sense that, yeah, the best forecast is probably just going to continue because we have no clue as to whether it's going to go up or down. But what we know empirically is that uh, it may well go up or it may well go down. Uh, there is this interesting result, which is that if you do decadal correlation, so you take average productivity growth over a decade and then over the next decade and so on, and then you look at the correlation between those, it's more or less zero. Uh, so, you know, what this says is if you have to make a forecast, just assume it continues, but can't quite be sure. And uh, I think that's relevant. I think we have to, in thinking about the world, we have to take into account the possibility that maybe, you know, we get another burst of productivity growth. It's a, it's a, it's not a, a tail event. It is more than that. It could really be. We really don't know. So that's one point. Then the other point is a point that I made in the introduction, which is more relevant for this lecture, which is, suppose you learned that productivity growth in the future is going to be lower. So you learn that potential growth is going to be lower. Well, this is going to lead you to change your plans today. If you're a firm and you think that your sales growth is going to be lower, then you're going to cut investment. There are some investments you're just not going to do. If you're a consumer and you're fairly aware of these things, you don't read CBO is my guess, but you read in the newspapers that the future is not great, you're going to cut consumption. So in the process of adjustment to this mediocre path, you're going to get a further 
decrease in demand. You have an accelerator effect at the beginning. As long as you get good news, you're going to cut demand. And basically what I found in a paper which I just finished is that the CBO revisions, which I've shown you, were very strongly associated with forecasters in consumption and investment, namely when CBO was revising down, then consumption was lower than had been forecast, investment was lower. So I think a good part of the weak demand of the past five years, if you want, doesn't come mainly from the legacies, but it comes from that. It comes from adjusting to a world which... So this goes away. I mean, the mediocrity in the medium run doesn't go away. That stays. But the initial response and the weakness of demand and therefore the need for very low interest rates goes partly away. Right? So if this is the case, it means that the weak demand we had, if there are no n- new bad news, uh, will, be, will get stronger. The adjustment will have taken place. And again, I, I, I wrote a slightly more formal paper along these lines, but I'm convinced that that's an important part of what has happened. There has been for many years a puzzle as to why demand was so weak. And, uh, you know, most of the forecasts by the IMF, but I assume maybe by the BOE as well, uh, have, have had this, this characteristic of, well, to pick up, it doesn't. Uh, that might be the explanation. Okay, let me move to, so I've talked about the legacies, I've talked about productivity growth and the short-run effects. Let me talk about the populism and political risk and so on. So here there are two questions, and again, I mean, as, as you well know, this could be uh, another lecture or another course or, or another book, but let me just pick up on some things. So there has been these political surprises, uh, uh, Brexit, US elections, and so on. And the question is, why? And I think it's, it's important for... Uh, and clearly it's important for policymakers, but it's important for economists to understand as well. And I want to debunk one idea, which is its inequality. Um, because, yes, it is inequality in the U.S., but it is not inequality elsewhere. And I want to show you, again, this might well, this might well be known, but I think it's worth doing. So these are graphs from uh, Piketty, which you probably have seen in some form, which basically show the uh, share of income going to the 10%, which is in red and in 1%. Uh, sorry, 1% in red and, and 10% in blue. And you can see in the U.S. how since the 1980s the two lines have gone up. Then you do the same thing for the U.S., uh, for France, and you can see that there has been no action. And this is pre-tax, pre-transfer, so this is not what the state is doing. It's market forces with all the distortions they have. But this is... And then I want to show you so for the UK, the UK, as you know, is more like the US and, and France. But this is the evolution of relative wages as a function of the level of education uh, from two data sets which are comparable, one for the US and one for France. And from a distance, they look the same, right? Except not. Except that if you look at the ordering, it's exactly the reverse, which is that in the US, the more skilled you are, the larger has been the increase in your relative income, uh, and the less skilled, the more of a decline. 
In France, it's exactly the opposite. Right? And again, this is pre-tax, pre-transfer. It's not pre-policies because, for example, the minimum wage clearly has a role in explaining what has happened at the bottom. But it is quite striking. Uh, and it says, again, just don't use inequality as the, uh, as the meta-explanation. I was wondering when I came as to how the UK looked like. Does it look like the US or does it look like France? Like US? Like France? Uh, this, so I couldn't find exactly the same data set as, as I had for it, but, but that, that comes fairly close. So this looks at the premium paid as a function of skilled. So clearly, if you're skilled, you have a higher premium. But the dark blue is 1993, the light blue is 2010. And you can see that basically for people above, the premium has decreased. For people below, it has slightly, uh, discount has slightly reduced. So the UK is more like France. Uh, than the U.S. Now, how you combine this with the income numbers we saw earlier, I don't know. But, again, it shows that this line which has come, which is income inequality, is it? It's irreversible. It's big. It's globalization. It's biotechnological progress. These things are there, but clearly the implications may be quite different. Okay, but that just felt like saying it, but it's not central to my talk. The, uh, the question is, what can we expect in terms of macro from, uh, from Trump? And I think here the point is that Trump, the Trump administration is not a standard populist administration. Trump himself is almost surely a populist in the Latin American way. The problem is that there is a Congress which has completely different opinions about everything, namely which is free market, no welfare state, don't help the poor. They basically can do on their own. And it's the interaction between the two which we've seen play uh, in the uh, Trump care uh, replacement uh, bill, for example, which is playing. So the result is, I think, nothing like Latin American populism for the time being. Uh, at the same time, it's nothing like what you know, somebody like Ryan would want. So it's a very strange combination, which I think I've not seen anywhere else before. Uh, so the question is, what is this going to create? You know, this is a discussion we all have every day, which is what's going to happen. But the point I was making is, I think in many of the other countries, what we have is a shift towards populism, leaving the Dutch aside, you know, one event. Uh, and I think that populism might be much more like the Latin American one, which is that if growth slows down and you have populist regimes coming, they are much more likely to do you know, very generous uh, transfers, large fiscal deficits, fiscal dominance, inflation. I don't think we're going to see this in the U.S. because of a combination of these two tendencies, but I think elsewhere. If things go wrong, I think we might well. This is, again, kind of a slide about current events. And here, I don't have much to say. You know, on fiscal policy, we really don't have a good sense of how big the deficits are going to be. It's a game. Uh, if they can convince themselves, 
that uh, it's going to increase growth, they might use this technique called dynamic scoring, which is a good technique, but they might misuse them and uh, misuse it and, and have larger fiscal deficits. I think the assumption has to be that the deficit will be a bit larger, but nothing like what Trump would do on his own, uh, but more so than uh, would have happened otherwise. My three policy, I think, there are two levels of uncertainty. Uh, the first one is the reaction to the uncertain fiscal deficits. If they come, then they, you know, how do they react? And then the second, who will be there to react, namely the reappointment of, uh, of the existing team or another one. So, and on trade policy, let me not talk about it. I can come back in Q&A. But to me, as a third force, I don't think, I think it's going to increase demand in the U.S. a bit. Um, the main effect, I thought, I still think, is an enormous increase in uncertainty due to the fact that this is a game which we don't know how it's played and how it comes out, whether there are large deficits, small deficits, and so on. And here I, I want to point to a puzzle which will be familiar to anybody who is in the market, uh, which is that, you know, we... It's interesting. We convinced ourselves that during the crisis that uncertainty was the second moment, was absolutely essential for first moment, that basically high uncertainty basically made people extremely careful, extremely prudent. They cut spending and so on. And clearly in the crisis we saw that. It was clear that at the end of 2008, first quarter of 2009. So this generated an enormous amount of work on constructing measures of uncertainty, ensuring how they work. So when Brexit came, we were absolutely ready to use these new theoretical and empirical tools, and we predicted, this is a royal we, but I think there are a few other people who did. Uh, I predicted that the option value of waiting, given the large uncertainty, would basically lead to an enormous drop in investment. And uh, I don't know by what reasoning the Bank of England came to the same conclusion. Uh, but I was wrong. Bank of England was wrong as well. Uh, so that's puzzle one. But it, it's even more striking now, which is this gives you two measures of uncertainty according to these new measures which have been constructed, which basically look at political uncertainty. So this is the blue and the red line. And you know, they have basically just shot up enormously, as I think they should. Uh, the green is the VIX, which is the implied volatility uh, of, uh, of stocks, and basically it has done absolutely nothing. Uh, you may say well, maybe the stocks, you know, maybe there's uncertainty in growth and interest rates, they both go up, they both go down, the stock market may not be affected very much, but I did not reproduce on this. There's a measure called MOVE, which is the same as VIX, but for bonds, right? And you can look at the MOVE at various maturities. So you can look at the implied volatility on 10-year bonds, for example, right? This went up a little bit, and is now basically where the VIX is. So there's a complete disconnect between the perception, at least as reflected by prices, uh, of markets and our perception that the world has become clearly much more uncertain. Now, what happens next? Maybe markets get to their senses, or we get to our senses and relax, but uh, it is clearly a, a major, I think, a major issue, and to me, it's, it's a major puzzle. So let me move now to the last 
two points, which is, okay, putting it together and then uncertainties. So here I'm going to repeat things I've said. So first factor was financial crisis legacies. They are fading in the sense of not affecting spending as much as they used to. But the debt ratios are going to remain very high under any assumption you make. If there is no inflation, if there is not much growth, debt ratios are going to be high for decades. Um, they are not constraining demand per se, but again, they are a source of, when they interact with shocks, a source of uncertainty. The second point, productivity growth being revised down, so we know that the medium term is worse, but I think we see the end of a, what I call the short-term adjustment, which is that now we understand the world, it's worse, we're just in consumption investment. We, did not, we do not need to decrease them dramatically. We can basically just adjust. So I think that force, again, is going to change and fade or disappear. The third is the Trump fiscal expansion, cum high uncertainty. Uh, what this implies, I think, is, you know, potential growth remains low, but we'll get faster to uh, do the potential output path. So you know, this is the IMF forecast, the last <coughs> available IMF forecast, and that seems about right, which is, you know, for emerging markets, kind of a bit of pickup, which comes from particular things. I mean, basically, Brazil getting out of the wood, uh, some wood, Russia, and so on. But for the advanced economies, it's basically more or less flat at two. So I think, again, baseline is probably that. Last slide, which I think is in many ways uh, the more interesting, which is, okay, so what can go wrong? So this is the usual slide in which you try to think about the various risks. Now, again, you can make a long list. I'm just going to focus on two. I want to go back to maybe the underlying theme of the lecture, which is that high debt, what matters a lot is what happens to our what happens to the interest rate, and what happens to growth, because that dynamics are entirely determined by that. So I think there are two risks. They're not necessarily bad, but there are two risks. The first one is that what I've talked about, which is the fading of the legacies, the fading of the adjustment to mediocre growth, means that demand looking forward is actually stronger than the central banks believe, in which case they would have to increase interest rates. Now, if this happens without an increase in productivity growth, that's an issue because basically the central banks will feel they have to increase interest rates. And then I think the danger is really for those countries which have very high levels of debt. So one of them is Ricardo's favorite, for example, Portugal, in which you know, if there was a 300 basis point increase in the interest rate, uh, it would be an issue. So the question is, can the ECB avoid that or not? And the danger for Japan is absolutely obvious. And at this stage, you know, depending on how you measure that, that debt-to-GDP ratio is between 160 and 240% of GDP. They basically pay zero on bonds at this point. If for some reason they had to pay something because the BOE thought that the Japanese economy was overheating or the investors got worried, bad things would happen. And again, I'm happy to discuss what bad things might be, but I think that's a risk. The other risk is that productivity growth turns around and becomes stronger. And I think we have to be ready. I think that's a, that's a relatively high probability risk. I have a sense that in terms of my, distribu my probability distribution, most of the distribution is above my mean, which cannot be. 
but um, I think there's a good chance that productivity growth just recovers for reasons we probably won't understand in real time, we'll understand after. If this is the case, then again, we know that higher growth is typically associated with higher interest rates. It's not a mechanical uh, relation. You know, we have, for those of you who have taken macro, is the Euler equation, which kind of links them together, but the Euler equation is utterly irrelevant in the real world. But it's still the case that R and G tend to move together. So in this case, we would probably see higher G, higher growth, higher interest rates. Is it good? Is it bad? And from the point of view of fiscal, it more or less cancels, right, because that is accumulating faster because of R, but it's dividing. It's divided in terms of debt to GDP. GDP is also growing faster. So if G and R move together, fiscal is unchanged. Basically, it's not harder. It's not easier. But if what happens is you have productivity growth in some countries and not in others, and the countries which don't have it will have the high interest rates, uh, or the banks or the central banks will be in a very difficult position as to what to do. So I think that's that's a risk. It's a much better risk than the first one. But uh, these are the, the two risks that uh, I think come as a result of thinking about what has happened in the way I did and trying to think about the future. Let me stop here. Uh, again, apologies for having the voice that I have. Uh, but I'm more than happy to take questions. Thank you very much, Olivia, for your insightful lecture. We will open the floor to questions. We will take three questions at the time. Uh, please say your name and affiliation and keep it concise. So we have one question and one at the back. I'm Sebastian Malaby. Hello, Olivia. Thank you for the lecture. Um, I want to make an observation about the Palo Alto uh, contrast and ask a question about it. So the observation is that when people in Palo Alto say um, everything is fantastic, what they mean is it's going to be fantastic in 10 years' time because they're looking at innovations in the pipeline and they're imaginatively living in the future. So in that sense, there's less of a contrast with macro people who report the data now, or even a bit backward-looking, and Palo Alto people who are anticipating how it's going to be later. Um, uh, <coughs> That leads to the question, which is um, when these people in Palo Alto are looking at the future, they're imagining a time when um, their innovations are moving out of classic IT and they're affecting more and more things. And the best example, of course, is the driverless car. And you know, you know the numbers about how in many states um, for blue-collar <coughs> driving a truck or a taxi or some vehicle is perhaps the biggest employment category. So if, you know, just taking that example, if you eliminated uh, those jobs and people were still moving around, um, doesn't that equate to rather a big jump in productivity, which gets to be big enough to, to address your point that IT is still a small part of the whole GDP? Yep. Uh, we'll, take, we'll take three questions, Olivia, if, if it's okay, okay with you, sure. and then uh, you can answer. Okay, I don't like that. Okay. And this is the way we used to do it at the IMF when we did not want to answer a question. <laughs> uh, 
but I'll follow orders. That's the, uh, as I, as I that's did a norm. Uh, so let's, uh... Hi, I'm Lisa. I have a background in wealth management. and Thank you very much for a in, very interesting lecture. Um, I just wondered, what's your view on the media and its effect on the political and economic spheres and indeed individual um, decision-making? Because obviously that, that's affected sorry, a lot of the I things. I didn't get that your question. About. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I did not understand your question. Oh, so my question was: what, what are your views on the media's role in affecting, influencing the political and economic spheres as they have, and um, and the, the effect on decision making of individuals? So, i.e., like a macroeconomic level, for example. I'm still the confused. Role of the media. The media. The media, yes. was the initial word that I Obviously, because you haven't mentioned the media at all in your lecture, but obviously it's had a huge effect on, for example, Brexit. Okay. One more in the back. I'm Ramin. I teach economics in King's College. I wanted to ask about the risk, the possible risk that, you know, raising interest rates in the West might oppose to many emerging economies, you know, capital inflows drying up and creating an additional source of uncertainty. Yeah, um, okay. So, Sebastian, I, and for economies at the frontier, for economies which are not at the frontier, then productivity growth or TFP growth comes from importing existing ideas, and that's a very different technology. So let's just look at the ones at the frontier. I think the big issue is how innovations translate into, how they, into implementations, what the diffusion of innovations is. And these guys are into innovations. Uh, diffusion is a different thing. My sense is innovations have continued. You know, all the measures we have suggest that innovation rates have continued at more or less the same rate as, as before. But what seems to have happened is that between 95 and 2005, there was a wave of implementation of IT in the reorganization of firms, global supply chains that came to an end. Right. Since then, we haven't found something as big, and we're looking. So I think there's a lot of randomness about this link, and I don't think we understand it very well. Uh, there is an interesting paper by Chad Jones uh, recently, which actually argues that although innovation has continued at the same rate, the cost of innovation has steadily increased. So if you believe that that eventually is going to slow down innovation, then that could actually have long-run effects. But for the moment, it looks as if it's very difficult. I mean, it's even harder to measure, you know, a rate of innovation uh, than TFP. I mean, how do you do this? You count the number of people working at night. I don't know what you do. But it looks as if this is, this is the issue. So even if these guys think that they're discovering great things, the question is how much will it basically percolate and affect the objects that we're using? Um, yeah, it looks like there's, uh, again, there is this tension between these two discussions, between the economists who say, oh, productivity growth is this small, and people say robots are everywhere, and they'll take all the jobs. I think there is probably a time uh, dimension to this, which is for the moment. Right? There's a number of papers which show that robots, you know, for the moment, haven't made an enormous difference. Uh, but it is conceivable that they might in the future. 
in which case what we would see would be an increase in productivity. Then the old answer, which I believed, and I still probably believe, is that this notion of technological unemployment uh, is, is coming, you know, is going to be an issue. Will we find jobs for the people who lose those jobs? Uh, or does unemployment increase? And I think the answer from the past is clearly we've gone through things like this many times and we always found other jobs. Whether that should be a given, it will be the same in the future. I'm not so sure. So when we get there, I think that you know, issues like universal income, things like this, will become relevant. For the moment, again, there's this discrepancy between the robot discussion and the productivity growth numbers, but I think it just comes from the fact that robots, for the moment, are not playing an important role. Uh, that's all I can say. On, on media, you know, this is not my expertise. It's clear that, uh, I mean, a lot of what's happening in the U.S. is based on uh, perceptions of people right and wrong, and that uh, mainstream media do not have the same influence on some groups of the population as they used to. Uh, yeah, I don't have any particular insights. It's, it's sad, <laughs> but... but uh, and it has implications, but uh, and with respect to the things I've talked about, I, d I don't think it's central, you know, except for the existence of Trump, which is fairly central. Uh, on interest rates, yes, I mean, if interest rates increase a lot, then we'll probably get capital inflows back to the countries which have high interest rates, which means that some capital will flow out of emerging market countries. That might create some problems, but it's a mixed, it's a mixed blessing. And I think that having seen the ebbs and flows of inflows and outflows during the crisis, the effects are very complex and they go both ways. And basically, when capital goes out, you get a depreciation. And depreciation for these countries is a good thing, right? Uh, so by itself, the fact that capital comes out is a good thing. But it's not the only thing. We used to think it was the main thing. It's probably the main thing, but capital goes out of some particular places in the country. So, for example, if what had happened was that inflows had led to more bank credit, and then the outflows take the form of taking out, you know, asking emerging market banks to pay back or decrease uh, the exposure to emerging market banks, then that's bad. So you have all kinds of effects. My view has been that that's the way the world works, and if there are things you don't like, for example, you think that it's very dangerous to have flows which come in and may go out quickly, creating chaos, then capital controls are the way to handle it. Uh, so I think that it's easier when they come in, when they, then they go out. Uh, you can prevent somebody from going into a store. It's harder to prevent them from getting out. Uh, but I think that's the way these countries should uh, handle it, which is... There are movements in interest rates. There are movements in relative rates of return. This is going to move capital back and forth. Some of it is good. Some of it is not good. What you don't like, you don't accept in, and therefore you don't have to worry about it going out if it never went in. Um, but this is a, you know, this is a subject of some debate. I'm in a panel with uh, Raghu Rajan uh, next week at the Kennedy School on that topic, and he thinks that. Uh, that uh, advanced economies, uh, monetary policies, uh, 
have complicated the life of uh, emerging market uh, central banks, but countries themselves, quite a bit. It's a complicated world. But again, it's not given that a capital outflow is a bad thing. Yusuf Masarali, I'm a postgraduate student in environmental economics here at LSE. Um, during my undergrad, I had the pleasure to study macroeconomics from your book, and uh, as many others, I guess. And I was slightly surprised that um, I think that maybe there was little attention about um, sustainable growth. In particular, um, I want to ask why you, you never mentioned a concept as the, the Hartwick rule or genuine saving. The what? The Last Hartwick sentence again. Or genuine saving? Glo uh, global, global savings? Genuine saving or Hartwick rule? Um, it's my ears are not good or... I want to answer your question, so I want to understand it. The Hartwick rule? It's like the um, idea to uh, account for the depletion of natural resources when you, uh, um, when you evaluate the GDP. So it's basically an index of sustainable growth. <laughs> Sorry. It's good that there are three questions. <laughs> I'm sorry, we'll, we'll, we'll explore further after, if you want. Um, so, I don't come from academia, I'm from um, the commercial banking world, I'm afraid. Um, so, I wanted to ask you, um, you didn't talk anything about sort of the supply side um, debate that's going on with regard to um, why we have low productivity growth, and that is to do with um, a paper that was published by Borio last year, um, and in that he basically argues that... Um, the credit boom that we experienced caused misallocation of resources into low productivity areas so that now that we don't have those areas anymore, um, we've got a, um, a hysteresis effect um, caused by that as a result. Um, I just wanted you to kind of comment on that, mainly because there's been a conference only uh, in February on the same sort of topic um, with regard to Europe. And one more question here. Um, Terry Raby, private investor. With the um, sensitivity to interest rates that you've been speaking about, for example, in Japan, do the very substantial holdings of public debt by the Bank of Japan not mitigate that interest rate risk? Okay. So with due apologies to you, I will answer two out of the three questions because I still didn't get yours. Um, to the extent that I understood yours, you were asking about what do we know about the sources of low productivity growth? I'm not a producer of that literature. I'm a consumer of that literature. And I, the answer is we don't quite know. I mean, some of it, if you talk about productivity growth, some of it is due to low capital accumulation. So that part is easy, right? There's been very low investment rates. So the rate of growth of capital has been lower than it was. So if you do a solo uh, decomposition, then that accounts for some of the decrease in productivity growth. Uh, how much depends, uh, I would say, for the U.S., about one-third of the decrease in productivity growth can be attributed uh, to lower capital accumulation. For the rest, it's TFP. It's a total factor productivity. And here, I, 
you know, there's a number of hypotheses. So one is that there's less reallocation in, after a financial crisis because reallocating requires funds and they're not given. But I've not seen any convincing evidence. I've seen it for one country, but I don't know if it applies to other countries. Um, the other is it may well be, if you think of banks, they basically probably have moved to a decreasing risk uh, and therefore there's a trade-off, decreasing expected return. So it may be that a very safe banking system, a banking system which only takes projects which are very safe, is also a banking system which basically finances projects which have a lower rate of return. Right? Decreasing risk comes at some cost. So I've seen these explanations, but I don't have a sense of whether you know, they really explain things. I think that, as we know, TFP is, is a very tough beast to understand, always. Uh, and I think that's the case. It may well be that there are people who know more. Maybe Andy, uh, two days ago, had uh, better answers, but um, basically not. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I have one. Um, on the banks, so does it matter that the BOJ holds a large proportion of the bonds of the government? No, it makes no difference whatsoever. Uh, because basically, and the way to see this is inter integrate the BOJ and the government. So think of the government as both, right? Then in the end, the fact that the BOJ holds some of the bonds issued by the government makes no difference. It just cancels out when you aggregate them. If you look at them together, what you have is the liabilities of a government which take two forms. Right? One is bonds held by the public, that's still there, right? And then it's the liabilities of the BOJ. Right? When he bought the bonds, it issued money. Right? Now at this stage it doesn't much matter because the interest rate on bonds is more or less zero. Right? So it doesn't have to pay high interest on the excess reserves of banks, right? If, for some reason, it wants to increase the interest rate for macro reasons, the Japanese economy kind of heats up, right? It will pay more on the bonds. It will increase the interest rate on the bonds. The banks will not hold excess reserves if the BOJ does not pay an interest rate which corresponds to the interest rate paid on the bonds. Because if it didn't, then they would just get rid of the money and basically move. So it really doesn't much matter. Now, another point here is people have magic solution. I think I even may have heard Joe Stiglitz propose that. Let's burn the bonds that the BOJ holds as if this was a solution to anything. It has absolutely no impact on anything. It's just a transaction between two branches of government. But if you take the government as a whole, once you've done the bonfire, right, you have exactly the same liabilities of the integrated government, which is the excess money and the excess reserves, which have been issued by the BOJ, which are still there, which are still claims that banks have against the BOJ and the bonds held by the public. Right? So, no it is not a solution to a problem. And when people say, oh, but that held by the public, the government that held by the public is much smaller than the number I just gave you. They are committing the mistake of not including the debt of the BOJ. At this stage, the BOJ pays zero. 
But if interest rates become positive, it will have to pay a positive interest rate. Thank you. We will have three more questions. We have one lady in the middle. Thank you. Uh, Emma Duncan, I work for The Economist. Uh, given the vulnerability of economies uh, in an era of high debt to uh, interest rate increases, should central banks be targeting higher inflation rates? So, as you may know, this is something on which I've expressed views in the past. Um, so I think there are two reasons why the issue should be, uh, the question should be asked. So the one, the context in which I was asking the question was, suppose that there is a sharp decrease in demand and the central bank would like to decrease the interest rate to a very, very low level, then having more inflation to start, therefore having higher nominal rates to start, gives it more freedom to decrease the rate, right? That I do not believe anymore. The, there are two reasons. The first one is that I've concluded that there's actually something good about having inflation on the 2% or at 2%, which is it loses salience. People don't care about inflation, if you ask. This has implications, major macro implications, which is the Phillips curve is not the one we used to have. The Phillips curve used to be that inflation depended on expected inflation and unemployment. Expected inflation responded to inflation. So if you wanted to maintain low unemployment, you had to keep pumping. If inflation expectations don't move anymore because people just don't think about it, then you have a much more attractive trade-off for a central bank, right? Much easier to do. And I think that's worth a lot. So the question is when the salience lost, uh, or when the salience reappear, and we don't know. But my sense is at four percent, which is what I was pushing. People start thinking about inflation seriously, and then we get into an accelerationist Phillips curve. So I think that's a fairly strong argument for keeping inflation very low. The question is, okay, so what do you do? And I've become convinced that Ken Rogoff uh, proposal, which is basically to uh, make cash nearly illegal uh, is the way. I don't think you have to make cash illegal. I think we're all moving to a world in which we hold very little cash and a whole lot on our checking account or whatever it is, right? So the question is, suppose that the banks decide to pay minus 1% on our checking accounts. Will we take all the money we have and put it in cash under the mattress. I think most of us would not. And the reason I say this is at this stage, the banks don't charge 1%, but they charge you fees which are higher than 1%, and we still keep the money there. So it's clear that the convenience is worth a lot, right? And I think the convenience will increase. And you might be able, if there is a major crisis and a large decrease in demand, to say, look, basically for a while, demand deposits are going to pay minus 4%. Now, some people are going to take their money out and put it under the mattress, but in general, I think you and I will say, ah, yeah, 
I'll take a few thousand pounds out or something. But it's not zero one. So I think that we're really going in the direction of having less and less cash, more and more deposit or equivalent. And so in this case, can solution, if it works, is better than mine, right? Because 4% inflation, I don't think, creates very large distortions, but it creates some distortions, uh, where his would only create trouble when it's needed, which is rarely, hopefully. So that's one. Now, there's another reason. So on this, I've changed my mind. The issue is debt, which was not part of it, right? At this stage, again, if I look at the forecast of the IMF for the countries I know, the debt-to-GDP ratios remain very high ad infinitum because, again, there is no growth, right, and there is no inflation, right? So the question is maybe we can go along and nothing bad will happen, but as I've argued, it may well, right? So it may make sense to decrease the debt a bit over time, a bit faster. You probably don't want to do debt restructuring formally because it's a mess, uh, you know, legally, it's tough. But you can do it informally and kind of nicely by having a rate of inflation which is a bit higher. And so, you know, it's sad that somebody has to, somebody will lose, namely the retirees and the people who hold that. But at least they will lose at the rate, which is, you know, if inflation is 2%, at the rate of 2%. And it seems to me that considering some inflation as a way of slowly decreasing the debt issue is one of So in, <clears throat> there is one place in which I actually have pushed it with no success, uh, which is Japan. It seems to me that if Japan could get wage inflation to 5% and price inflation to 4 then there is a path of decrease of debt maintaining the interest rate very close to zero, which would basically not get them out of the woods, but get them closer to the... Ah, out of the woods. Um, it seems impossible to convince the Japanese unions to ask for wage increases. Uh, I've tried. It doesn't work. Uh, and I've explained that, no, no, it is not a decreasing... You know, basically, the wages would increase, uh, firms would increase prices, the central bank would decrease the interest rate so that the real price would be the same, same competitiveness. I got nowhere. People who actually speak Japanese got nowhere either. So uh, it's not just my lack of uh, fluency in Japanese. It's something deeper. But, yeah, so I think there's an argument for, in a situation like this, to actually use inflation a bit to kind of try to decrease these ratios. Long answer, sorry. Two more quick questions. And we have one here and one there. Hello, uh, I'm Machi Pomekawa, a student of uh, economics here at LSE. I wanted to ask about the TFP growth figures uh, across the world and in particular across advanced economies. As we know, there is substantial variation uh, between countries in TFP growth figures, uh, total factor productivity. And um, I have heard from uh, Lorenzo Codogna, who uh, has been the head of Italian Treasury, 
for nine years. I heard two days ago that if you took the sectoral TFP growth figures for Italy and multiplied them by the shares of um, of uh, these sectors in the U.S. economy, not the Italian economy. If you pretended that the uh, sectoral composition of the Italian economy is the same as the U.S., you would get the same TFP growth in Italy and in the U.S. And so um, I wonder whether um, the variation in TFP growth figures across countries um, comes rather from the fact that um, countries uh, have a different composition of uh, their economies, or uh, does it come from the uh, variation uh, across countries but within sectors? Is it that that um, in Portugal um, technology grows uh, slower and manufacturing grows slower than in the US, or is it perhaps that Portugal just doesn't have as much uh, technology in its economy um, as the U.S., and this is why its uh, growth is uh, slower. Uh, which of the which of uh, these uh, two factors uh, dominates? And the last question. I'm Hannah. I'm an economic history and economics student here at the LC. And my question was, do you think that the rise in populism in the U.S., U.K., and probably in France in the next couple of weeks is due to um, a decrease in, uh, in wages in the last decade? And if this is the case, do you think that populism will be the answer for an increase in wages in the, in the countries I just mentioned? So I'm not trying to go. I, let me start with the last question. Again, I argued that the focus on just wage distribution may not be the right focus, given what I showed. Uh, and there are countries where people at the bottom of the distribution have done relatively well. So clearly you should be thinking about other issues if you want to decrease populism. I don't know if this answers your question. But does it? Um, on TFP growth, you're raising a very good point. Um, I don't, I, I mean, you know, it's very, very, very simple way of checking this, which is to do shift share analysis and see how much of the differences are due to composition. I've not done it. I suspect there's some truth to it. I think that uh, if you're in the wrong sectors, uh, maybe low TFP growth sectors, you're going to have an average which is lower. I do not know how much of the differences explains across countries, but the question is a very good one. Thank you, everyone. Um, Thank you for your questions and thank you for joining us today and I uh, propose a big applause to <laughs>